I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I am the dust from which you come. And I'm Matt Bernico, the dust to which you'll return to. Getting real uh, occupied with death and our mortality here in this Lenten episode. Yeah, I don't know what the Latin is for um, remember your death while you listen to this podcast, but it's probably memento mori something, and it, so- it sounds a lot better in Latin is the thing. I wish I could figure that out. It would definitely sound better in Latin if we could figure it out, but we can't. Um, so in this episode, <laughs> we're going to not even bother uh, with the Latin, and we're going to talk about Bernie Sanders. We're going to talk about Cuba, because what else is there to even talk about? But before any of that, before we get to the good stuff, we're going to get to the bad stuff. Um, Dean, last week you brought to the Magnificast a new sort of twist on our whole thing, where you we played a little bit of a two truths and a lie kind of game. Uh, with the Creation Museum. That was last week, right? I'm not just hallucinating. You're right. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. All right, so we're going to do kind of the same thing, um, but with this time, this time with a different Christian attraction, not the Creation Museum, um, but the most magical place on Earth, uh, the Holy Land Experience in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> Great. Um, I, yeah, I missed that one when I went. Yeah, you were just there. Kind of a bummer that you didn't uh, make it over to this one. Yeah, next time, you know. <laughs> That's right. Um, next time, maybe. Okay, so the Holy Land experience in Florida. I'm just going to give you a little bit of uh, some background on what it is, and then I'm going to tell you how this game is going to work. Okay. So the Holy Land experience offers, this is the copy from their website. The Holy Land experience offers an unforgettable adventure that immerses you in the sights, sounds, historical time frames, and impacting truths of the Bible. With its colorful and realistic recreations of ancient Israel, unforgettable interactive exhibits, awe-inspiring theatrical productions, and special hands-on fun for kids of all ages, the Holy Land experience brings the world of the Bible to life. As a Christian-based theme park, our goal is for you to see God's world exalted, so you will be encouraged. Um, So that's that's it. It's a theme park. Um, Probably, I've done a lot of research into it at this point. I sunk definitely more than an hour just reading about what is going on here tonight. (laughs) 
so in depth. That's um, where all the Patreon money goes, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, it goes towards my internet bill, so I can read about the Holy Land experience. <laughs> it uh, it reminds me a lot of the uh, the Baker's uh, Heritage uh, shoot Heritage USA or whatever it was called. Their, yeah, right. Their right. Christian theme park, but this one is more Christian, I think, even than the Baker's, which is saying something. Um, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to describe three attractions at the Holy Land Experience in Orlando, Florida, and you'll have to guess which one I made up. And I got to okay, tell you, great. they're all insane. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm ready. <clears throat> okay, so here's uh, attraction number one, Roman Soldier Training Camp. Uh, the the copy <laughs> on, on these are all over the place, too, honestly. Um, I'm not saying that just to cover my tracks. I'm saying that because they are all just written <laughs> like a... A person uh, with a who's really struggling with their with their Christianity is like <laughs> writing them all. Okay, so Roman soldier training camp. Unleash your inner warrior as you enlist in our Roman soldier training camp. Get ready to train alongside Rome's greatest defenders as you gear up with your sword and shield and develop your fighting skills taught by our very own soldiers. Mm-hmm. You'll get ready for combat by performing step by step. What a drill. threat! <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> You'll get ready for combat by performing our step-by-step drills that will prepare you for your final test. I don't know what it is. They don't tell us. Uh, Give us your loudest war cry and show us if you've got what it takes to become a certified defender of Rome. Now, this one's fun because you get to be the bad guys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's right. You get to be the bad guys. You get to be either the bad guys or the Catholics in both cases, something you probably wouldn't want to be as an evangelical. So I love that. That's right. Yeah. The um, the background of this place is also pretty wild, too, because it was started by uh, a, a very particular sort of messianic Jew- Jewish sect of evangelical mm-hmm. Christianity. And then that it got bought right. by the uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network. So it's like, you know, <laughs> sa- saturated in complicated theologies. Uh, OK, so Roman soldier training was number one. Number two, this one is is something. Uh, this is the Trin IT mini golf course. Okay. Um, All right. So the plan words there is pretty apparent. The Trinity Mini Golf Course. Okay. An 8,000 square foot mini golf course. The Trinity Mini Golf Course features Old Testament focused props and settings that tell Bible stories. (laughs) The course begins with guests entering a massive Noah's Ark that features numerous statues of animals. Guests can put a ball at Goliath's head in the Goliath in the David versus Goliath hole. Other holes include <laughs> Jonah and the whale. I'm sorry. Just, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you should just blow past the David versus Goliath hole. Yeah, you can put you can. I'm sorry. I, I, uh, I misread here. You can put a ball at Goliath's head in the David versus right, Goliath right, hole. Right. Yeah. Great. Other holes include include Jonah and the whale, <laughs> where guests enter into the belly of a whale to encounter a life-size animatronic Jonah, and a hole that features the walls of Jericho. The course ends with the crucifixion of Jesus. <laughs> Perfect. That's where yeah. it ought to end. <laughs> That's you put I don't it know. in the, you, you put it in the crucifix hole. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's so like this, the the doubting the, Thomas putt. <laughs> there's no church of axe in this one there's no church of axe hole there's no uh there's no beast rising from the ocean hole which is a real big downer i think yeah, all right here's the be. here's the last one a closer walk with the 4d experience <laughs> an extraordinary adventure for all ages a closer walk with the 4d experience puts you right by the side of jesus christ as a disciple Follow in the footsteps of 
Oh, sorry. Uh, follow in the footsteps of Christ the Lord as he beckons you to follow him walking in the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Sit at Jesus' feet at the Sermon on the Mount and watch on in awe as he's crucified and resurrected. Their stunning 3D special effects illuminate the majesty and divinity on the spiritual journey towards salvation. So that's it. That's the three. And they're all... <laughs> all right, great. <laughs> they're all pretty implausible, but uh, one is more implausible than the others. Yeah. They are all pretty implausible. Hmm. This is a tough one. I do like that at the very end, the 40 theater is, uh, hey, um, do you want to uh, get really attached to this guy and then watch him be tortured to death in 4D? <laughs> That's just uh, a really nice um, attraction, a good, wholesome Christian attraction for the whole family. It is, um, the, is the crux of all of evangelical Christianity, so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, I love it because in 4D theaters, uh, the seats move around and they spit water at you. Um, and I just, mm-hmm. I love those effects. Uh, these are tough. You have done a great job finding the one. I, I would believe, if you told me they were all real, I would believe you. I'll say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say that it's the Trinity golf course is fake. I'm so sorry. You're wrong. <laughs> nope the trinity golf course with the crucifixion of jesus at the end is real yeah that's Uh, a real thing that exists i couldn't believe that they would say the david and goliath hole on the internet just you know (laughs) leaving it out there but that's fine and and an animatronic jonah is something i guess i do want to put a ball past um i have to admit (laughs) yeah so um yeah, the, the fake one here was the Closer Walk with the 40 experience. That was one that I Great. didn't make up. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, unfortunately, you can't walk with Jesus. and uh, You can't walk with Jesus in the water. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Not even in a 40 experience. Not yet. Man, I figured that one would be for sure because they have to compete with all those other uh, 40 experiences in Orlando. Um, they need one of their own. But uh, maybe one day. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it seems so easy. I, if if there is not a 40 ex- a Jesus experience out there, I'm going to be really surprised. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's like a bizarre 40 edit of the passion somewhere in some rich person's basement. Absolutely. Um, so this whole theme park is absolutely nuts. Um, it is, like I said, yeah, it's owned by Trinity Broadcasting. And um, it's mostly just like shows you go to. It's mostly drama and musicals. That's kind of the whole thing. And there is a, a children's area with all these other things like mini golf and soldier training. Man, soldier training is so upsetting <laughs> the more I think about it. It's pretty wild. Um, also, the fact that they have their own standing army is something else. <laughs> the picture is of two men in centurion uniforms. And it's probably just the two. Just the two of them, I think. um i the the weirdest thing about this is that uh like we've said in the past um people get paid to do these kinds of things um and i just can't imagine like it's been a long day a long day at this specific theme park the holy land experience uh you've been training children all day to be (laughs) roman centurions and you have to go home to like your apartment in orlando florida uh, and still be probably like a Christian or something afterwards. I can't imagine what a place. Uh, I I would love to do like a, a Hunter S. Thompson Gonzo journalism uh, experience of just getting a job there for six months. <laughs> it would be incredible for sure. Um, I I imagine that most of the performers are 
college interns from various evangelical schools. Like that's that's a hypothesis, <laughs> yeah. but I'm pretty sure it's right. <laughs> they also had uh, the uh, okay, so the, the a little bit of the history behind this place for whatever reason, just because I know about it now. Like I said, it was started by this like messianic Jewish sort of like a evangelicalism, which is I mean got a lot of baggage, but like the um. The anti-Semitism is like dripping, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it completely is trading in all of the sort of like trappings of Judaism that Christians really love. And God, it's gross. I hate it. I hope it closes. Um, yeah. Feel sorry for all of the uh, college interns who are going to lose their internships. But uh, boy, does it suck. <laughs> They'll be better off. But it's doing them a favor. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, well, there you have it. Um, you stumped me. You're, the score now is one to zero. Matt one and uh, i owe matt i guess um another challenge a more challenging challenge i'll try to come up with one <clears throat> maybe this is the <laughs> maybe this is the patreon content that we've always uh been trying to come up with and never had um or a surefire way to make sure that everybody quits supporting us on <laughs> patreon i suppose there's only one way to find out uh we'll do more thinking about that uh, all right, we've done it. We figured out the Holy Land experience. We've had that experience. Uh, but let's turn to what we said at the top of the show and what you probably are listening for. Um, this All this stuff about Fidel Castro and Bernie Sanders. Uh, probably you already know. I don't know. Maybe you don't if you are blessed enough to not have the internet or television. But uh, last week in a 60 Minutes interview that aired on Sunday on uh, CBS... Uh, Bernie Sanders said that he opposed the authoritarian, authoritarian nature of the Cuban regime. Um, and that was uh, in the context of a, a conversation when Anderson Cooper was trying to press him on his uh, socialism. Um, Bernie said, uh, it's unfair to simply say that everything is bad. Um, and then uh, he said, when Fidel Castro came to office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it. Uh, and that sparked just a, a wave of people being very upset about Fidel Castro, very upset about Cubans reading books. Um, just the the discourse was out of control, as you might imagine. Um, so here's the thing. Bernie Sanders trying to play that Democratic Socialist card. You know, he's he's having it both ways here. Um, that's his his thing. Those are his convictions. <laughs> but we on this podcast uh, are communists and uh, we want to up the ante a little bit and have an episode about hey uh what if fidel castro is good actually not just begrudgingly good not just did a couple of things but uh perhaps is a very good important dude um so matt and i did a little bit of work trying to pull together some stuff on cuba specifically on the literacy programs um and then also we went back to some of our favorite liberation theologians to try to figure out what christians might think about cuba and what some of them already have yeah, that's what we're going to do. Uh, Fidel Castro's good, actually. I mean, you know, just like anyone, any historical figures, there's some good, there's some bad, there's some things that I wish Fidel Castro hadn't said or done. <laughs> but like, I don't know. Of course. Overwhelmingly, he's a force for good in Cuba. He's not Batista. He um, made an entire society, uh, you know, with the help of all of the people of Cuba um, that is markedly better and more socialist than it was before. That's for sure. Um so so he's good and that's what we're gonna do in this one <laughs> yeah uh and it is important i guess to say all right there's two different ways of having a nuanced opinion 
about communist states, I think, on the left. Uh, one is to do what Bernie does here, which is to say, um, you know, you want to denounce what you call authoritarianism or what you might disagree with in terms of a, a governmental structure, etc., uh, while also recognizing that, you know, there are some real genuine improvements that you should celebrate and uh, those shouldn't be disqualified by someone being a communist. That's that's fine, um, you know. I wish more socialists felt that way anyway, because <laughs> a lot of them don't take the time even to have the kind of nuanced praise. Uh, the other way is to say, all right, yes, um, sometimes communists do bad things, but at the end of the day, it's important that we go out of our way to uh, support these kinds of projects in the world and also to try to really do the hard work of understanding why people make claims about authoritarianism and, and investigate them and figure out whether or not they're true, etc. So that's what we're going to do a little bit <laughs> in this episode. Yeah, uh, totally. not exhaustively, but a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so if you're if you're playing the Magnificast home game and you want to follow along with any of the readings, uh, you're gonna have a really hard time this week because the readings are pretty um, eclectic, I guess, to say the least. Um, we found a handful of things that folks like Leonardo Boff and Fry Beto said uh, about uh, Castro and Cuba. And then um, for some of the other some of the other uh, pieces of, of the episode this week, um, I'm pulling them from some interviews that a uh, an American journalist named Lee Lockwood did with uh, Fidel Castro in 1967. That was it's assembled in this giant um, like photography book called Castro's Cuba. Um, the uh, the book itself is extremely beautiful and extremely heavy. Um, it's a big it's a big ass book, man, and it's full of these like really incredible pictures that the journalist Lee Lockwood took, but uh, and they're they're paired really interestingly with these um, interviews he did with Castro. So, um, some some sort of like firsthand accounts uh, journalism here, and then also some theological reflections. So, anyways, all that to say, the stuff that we're gonna say in this episode is gonna be pretty hard to find, but if you need references, that's where you should go. Um, cool. Well, how about we just kind of lay out a quick chronology of like the time period and um, what's going on with like Fidel and Cuba. Does that sound pretty good? That sounds great. That would be very helpful to me also. Okay. So Fidel Castro, <laughs> the man in question, he was born on August 13th, 1926. There you go. Um, I think as we've discussed in previous episodes, when we've talked about Fidel, uh, he had a lot of Catholic schooling. That was a big thing in his sort of like middle class family in Cuba. Um, well, middle class is probably putting it wrong, but just the same. Uh, Catholic schooling is all I'm trying to say here. Um, yeah, Jesuit he schooling had even. Jesuit yeah, schooling he was, even. He was bourgeois though. Yeah, absolutely. I said middle class, and I guess I meant bourgeois. But yeah, um, yeah. So um, you know, had a he had a life. He was a person. He was a um, he had a, a you know a whole a whole life. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I'm struggling to do it. But um, the things that, um, <laughs> as far as like revolutionary history goes, um, things start picking up on July 26th, 1953, where he leads an attack on the Mankata Barracks, which is like the first sort of like um, revolutionary push uh, for Cuba. Um, and after those attacks, he's imprisoned along with the people that, you know, led, he, you know, led the attack with. Um, he's in prison for a few years from 1953 to 1955. And then in 1955, he's released in May and exiled to Mexico. And that's, uh, where things get interesting. Uh, Fidel meets Che Guevara. Um, and that's cool. Um, and then, uh, they start kind of planning like what's next. And they end up going back to Cuba on a yacht called the Grandma, um, with uh, 82 other rebels, it's in 1965, and uh, they they land in Cuba, and there's 
tons of setbacks on this like sort of initial excursion where only like 15 or, or something of the uh, initial 82 rebels end up um, regrouping in the mountains uh, of Cuba. So, so many of them were lost by, um, you know, uh, like just all kinds of disasters and uh, conflicts and stuff. So anyways, um, yeah, through uh, throughout that time, there was like a bunch of small um, victories where they ended up gaining a lot of steam. Um, there were some failed general strikes. There were some kind of successful strikes. Some won battles, some lost battles, but in the end, um, in 1959, Batista fled Cuba and uh, Fidel became the prime minister later in 1959. So that's like a really, a really like whirlwind kind of history of like what happened during the Cuban Revolution. But there it all is. Those are the important things, at least, um, or at least important enough for like a 30 second explanation on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's all a really good run up to um, the revolution itself. Uh, and then, of course, like every kind of revolutionary society or a society that's been through, a, you know, power vacuum or a struggle for power, there's all kinds of really interesting and complicated problems that have to get solved in the first few years, like what kind of government are they going to have? Um People don't often remember, I think, that uh, the revolutionary movement wasn't actually the communist movement at first. Um they were the the 26th of July movement, <laughs> sort of poorly named, uh, but not um, not ideologically communist quite yet. Uh, eventually, they would become so as they're trying to solve different social problems and think about how to rebuild their society differently. Um, plenty of interesting stuff happening with respect to Christians in Cuba as well, with all those kind of conversations. Um, and the first like decade or so of uh, the post-revolutionary society, I think you could say, is marked by just a lot of like experiments and, and fits and starts, uh, but things start to settle um, toward like the late 60s and early 70s, um, which are usually viewed as kind of like the good years, more or less. Um, and then, of course, Cuba has all kinds of uh, ups and downs tied to the history of communism uh, in the decades following that. Um, I guess we should say a couple things up front um, to kind of set the stage here. So, you know, Bernie felt the need to kind of have this nuanced take um, for probably obvious reasons, right? The United States is an extremely anti-communist society and he's trying his best to like sell socialism so he doesn't feel and maybe he genuinely doesn't think that Cuba should be affirmed or something in, you know, without qualifications or anything. But uh uh, the kind of roots of all of that are interesting to follow because the Cold War is one thing, uh, but the United States did have, you know, lots of campaigns to try to kill Fidel Castro over and over, like hundreds of times, <laughs> documented times. They tried to invade Cuba. They did invade Cuba at one point. Um, so uh, that led the U.S. to also create a lot of narratives about Cuban society, um, some of which might have a grain of truth but need to be contextualized or something like uh, imprisoning political dissidents, um, persecuting religious people or whatever. We've done some of that on the podcast in the past, um, but I guess it's just worth noting that uh, you shouldn't necessarily believe everything you hear from uh, the enemy of a particular state when they're talking <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah, you should actually believe very little of it. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, the thing that was kind of in question um, with with regards to uh, Bernard Sanders, um, as I like to call him in my house, um, <laughs> is, yeah, like education and literacy. That was kind of the thing that everyone was uh, scandalized about all of a sudden. And, you know, uh, even just this week in response, there have been all kinds of like uh, 
reactionary think pieces of like, you know, I went to school in Cuba and this is what it was like and, you know, <laughs> yeah. all this kind of thing yeah. from, you know, the Miami Herald or whatever. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, just, the the uh, the anti-communism of the Cold War is is always ready to kick back up whenever anyone mentions Cuba or whatever. Um, but anyways, all that to say, uh, I dug into a few of these interviews where Castro talks a little bit about the education programs and the literacy brigades and uh, so on. And I don't know, it's kind of interesting because it's a little bit of a different story than, um, I don't know, Anderson Cooper or or you'd hear, you know, at the debate stage or whatever about uh, about Castro. And it, it's worth telling, I think, because um, I don't know, it's it's an approach to uh, education and building a new society and socialism that I think uh, socialists would good would be, you know, good to hear again. Um, mm hmm. Okay, so this is from Lee Lockwood's interview with uh, Castro in 1967. Um, this is kind of like uh, getting into some of this educational territory. And uh, a lot of the questions that I think people are bringing up today are here present in 1967, too. So you can hear how Fidel himself works them out. Uh, so Lee Lockwood asks, um, one of the first big programs that you created was the system for training student teachers in Minas del Frio and elsewhere. I probably said that like an idiot, but... Sorry. Um, so how has that worked out? Are you satisfied with the results? Um, Fidel says, yes, it's been a great success. Uh, before, it was very difficult to get teachers who would go into the mountains. Now students from every province and from all the small towns go into the country and teach uh, in schools. And when they graduate, they begin to teach in the mountains. Um, so basically what Fidel is talking about here is, is the literacy brigades. Um, and and like not just the literacy brigades, not just like teaching um kids how to uh read and write but also teaching adults there's like the uh the literacy brigades have these like f very specific f like phases i guess where first they taught the kids and then the t the kids would teach their parents and adults and um and so on until everyone knew how to read and this is like a big deal for cuba because um the uh it's not like no one knew how to read but literacy was lower than it ought to have been um so there you go this this big push at the very beginning of the revolution in the late 60s is to teach everyone to read and to make sure that there are teachers everywhere, that the, the country's schools are staffed, and Fidel thinks that's important. Um, it's not just important because Fidel, I mean, Fidel Castro for sure is a person who is like deeply engaged with like making ethical decisions for a country, for sure, right? Like he cares about people reading because, because he cares about people. But um, there's also like a tactical reason to do this, too, I think. Uh, and that is um, after the revolution, a bunch of people fled Cuba, <laughs> you know, like the people who were wealthy and elite in society uh, would they fled Cuba. So Fidel had to make sure that there are people around who were able to study uh, and learn and read and, um, you know, be the future of the country. So there's this whole other sort of tactical idea behind it as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is that, I guess, a pretty good place to start, Dean? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's also worth noting that, uh, like, the the actual literacy campaign was, like, remarkably successful. <laughs> like, really impressive. Um, there's all kinds of statistics, and some of them are kind of hard to get because, 
you know, we're talking about statistics from decades and decades ago and about a country that people might not necessarily have been too interested in beforehand. But um, even like liberal or kind of international progressive institutions or uh, even just international institutions in general uh, pretty widely agree, you know, it's not controversial to say uh, Cuba um, did have great success in that, right? That's what Bernie Sanders is pointing to. Um, But just to take uh, like a couple of um, examples. So, uh, I found, um, after doing some extremely quick Googling, uh, the literacy rate, uh, before the revolution, before 1959 in Cuba is estimated around like 77% by UNESCO. So that's prior, uh, again, that doesn't mean nobody knows how to read and write, of course, but, Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, um, not a hundred. Um, and also imagine if, you know, almost two thirds of your society couldn't, or sorry, imagine if one third of your society couldn't read, that would be a big deal. Um, also, uh, in 1961, which is when the literacy campaign really happened, uh, they successfully raised Cuba's literacy rate to, uh, almost a hundred percent, basically, uh, virtually unanimous across the, the island. So, um, I mean, that, that's a very short, time period uh to accomplish an extremely ambitious and ethical goal so anyway all that to say it's a really heroic social effort um and one that you know i I feel like any kind of objective observer would still be like whoa that is an accomplishment yeah Um, yeah totally and and some of the some of the detractors too will say that you know even before like you said before the revolution it was 70 percent like that's still pretty good but what's really important about that 70 percent of people that could read before the revolution um is that they, you know, those are the people that were, uh, were, were like already well off and well educated. They weren't the people, you know, farming in the countryside. They weren't the people living in the inner mm-hmm. cities. You know, it was like the the bourgeois class. It was not, uh, not everybody. You know, the a- access to education um, with regarding to literacy was not, uh, you know, um, universal like it would be after the revolution. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, like that's right. Yeah, uh, you can be mad about uh, Fidel Castro being an authoritarian all you want, but like, listen, he taught everyone to read, so shut up about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, I want to pull out uh, another kind of interesting um, exchange here that you uh, brought to my attention earlier, uh, Matt, uh, talking about Lockwood's interview. Um, I really liked this little bit that you found in here, um, so I'll read through it really quickly. So Lockwood poses a question. To Fidel saying, is it true that a young man can enter the university, or sorry, is it true that a young man cannot enter the university unless he is a revolutionary? So again, more questions about education. Fidel replies, well, there's no regulation, but there is a policy that is applied through the student organizations by means of agreements that are discussed and adopted in public general assemblies in which the mass of all the students of a department participate. It is required at least that one not be a counter-revolutionary. So that's a very interesting qualification. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he uh, goes on to say, to train a university-educated technician costs thousands upon thousands of pesos. Who pays for that? The people. Should we then train technicians who later on are going to leave to work in the United States? I don't believe that's right. The country, in making this expenditure, has the right to the guarantee that it is training technicians who are going to serve the country. Um, both of those are really interesting points, right? The first being, well, um, it's, we don't have like a stated policy that you can't come here, uh, unless you're a revolutionary, but like, we're not going to accept you if you're just gonna <laughs> basically take all of our, uh, all the money that you get here and, you know, bring it somewhere else, uh, which I yeah. think is a really, you know, admirable thing that makes a lot of sense. Uh, they don't want to have another sort of brain drain, uh, based on class interests or upward mobility. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it makes sense, right? It's like education is good. You can you can get educated in Cuba, but you have to like um, there's I guess there's an orientation to it where you are doing it not for yourself. First of all, there's like a social aspect where you're doing it for the good of the country and the good of, you know, all the other people. Um, and also the, like everyone's paying for it through taxation and probably other mechanisms as well. So, you know, you can't just like you can't just like uh, uh, take it and run, I suppose. It's a good good qualification that gives some character to like what the educational like outcomes and goals are of uh, the post revolutionary Cuba, um, and it's helpful. Um, let's see a few other notes about this too. Um, okay, first there's a really funny uh, a funny like um, response to where Fidel's like, you know, you don't even have to be a Marxist Leninist to study the university. You can be Catholic. You can be Protestant. No big deal. <laughs> you just can't be counter revolutionary, <laughs> and I think that's good. Right. Um, this, there's a part here, too, that I, I didn't include a, a direct quote about, but I think it's probably worth mentioning. Um, so um, just like we were saying earlier, right, like um, Fidel, an overwhelmingly positive force in Cuba, but also not perfect. Um, there's a whole bit in here about homosexuality, too, that uh, Fidel is mm-hmm. having a hard time mm-hmm. grappling with. And in 1967, I mean, I don't want to just say uh, I don't want to just say like, well, a product of his times, but at the same time, he is very much so. Um, he has some like n- some negative feelings about um, about LGBTQ people, um, in that they shouldn't be in positions of leadership. Just the same, there's a lot of homophobia, um, kind of latent in uh, some of Fidel's thoughts about education that is just worth mentioning. Um, it's the same same type of homophobia you'd probably find in the United States as well, but um, it's here and it's disappointing. Yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely fair to uh, always bring that out um, for two reasons. One, because the persecution of gay people in Cuba was very bad under the revolutionary government, um, which is unfortunate because, uh, I mean, unfortunate, obviously, because you shouldn't do that. (laughs) But also uh, unfortunate because there was a there's a real kind of revolutionary moment happening um, in terms of the sexual revolution around the world at that time, too. And it's too bad that uh, you know, they kind of internalized the conservatism of uh, bourgeois society rather than kind of getting to that revolutionary point quickly. Um, it's also worth mentioning, too, that later on, uh, the island did change and Fidel changed, too, and they admitted that that was a mistake um, to be homophobic in that way, uh, which is good. Um, but yeah, it doesn't excuse the actual suffering that happened uh, in that effort. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um yeah, I mean, it's just good to keep these kind of things at the forefront because uh, I don't know, um, you know, you got to, I guess, balance on the one hand where these are like extremely good social things to happen. But, you know, there's still um, plenty of bad and uh, like ignorance to be found in it as well. So there you go. Um, OK, well, um, we can probably come back to some of those ideas later if uh, they come up again. But. Um, the, the question that's kind of at the forefront of a lot of the Bernie Sanders, Fidel Castro dialogue, uh, the, uh, the discourse is absolutely buck wild that this this is where we're at in 2020 so far. But the, uh, the, the, the pressing question is that like, well, you know, maybe Fidel Castro did teach a bunch of people to read and that's great. But don't you think that they also use that for political indoctrination is like everybody's thing, right? That's like the, that was like the big politifact thing on Twitter the other day, um, which is uh, it's not worth talking about even, but you know, um, that that's it that like Fidel Castro, maybe he did something good, but he only did it to get people to believe in socialism. And, um, and let's get to the bottom of that one right now. Let's get to the bottom of that claim. Um, so Lee Lockwood asks, uh, to what extent does the curriculum in Cuban schools include political indoctrination? 
And Fidel says, what you call political indoctrination would perhaps be more correctly called social education. After all, do not forget that those children are being educated to live in a communist society. From an early age, they must be discouraged from every egotistical feeling and the enjoyment of material things, such as the sense of individual property, and be encouraged toward the greatest possible common effort and spirit of cooperation. Um, so in response, like, uh, do Cuban schools include political indoctrination? Fidel Castro's like, hell yeah, they do. <laughs> Why wouldn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, of course they include political indoctrination because like even liberal schools do even conservative schools do. And, um, at least in this sense, Fidel Castro is like, yeah, there's going to be political indoctrination. It's, that's a weird way to say it, but social education is a part of every type of education. And uh, if mm-hmm. you want to make a new society, that's not capitalist. Um, that's like, you know, recovering from, um, mass exploitation, you're going to have to do some, uh, some political indoctrination to say the least. Yeah. And that point too, of just being open and honest about it is good, right? Because uh, anybody who's been through schooling in the United States knows that you're getting a lot of political indoctrination, uh, whether you want to or not. Um, You know, I went to Catholic elementary school and then public middle and high school. And in both of those places, you still say the pledge. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're trying to make you a good citizen uh, of a capitalist society. So they're teaching you civic values and how democracy is supposed to work um, under capitalism and all that kind of thing. Um, And it's important that they do. Right. If that's what you want, if that's a society you want, then you should teach kids to do it <laughs> to do it well uh and of course um fidel is adding that extra bit of like communism is very difficult um it's a hard thing to sort of fight against those uh egotistical feelings especially when you've been shaped by you know decades and decades of capitalism so uh yeah you got to do a little bit of uh, deprogramming yeah it makes a lot of sense i mean it's I don't want to shoehorn this in here too much, but it is Lent after all. And like, what is Lent about? If not, <laughs> if not deprogramming your body, your, your brain from all the dumb things that it wants, um, and, and doing something different. Um, I mean, in this one, in this way, a very different sense, but just the same. Um, I, I don't know. There's like the, the, like a liberal assumption in education that you just teach people the facts, just the history or whatever, like with no particular viewpoint in mind. And that is completely, um dumb because it's not the way anyone ever lives or works or how anything works you know there's the intrinsic social value of everything that you teach somebody and at least fidel castro knows that yeah well uh the link connection here is a great transition to start talking a bit about uh liberation theology um we've talked about christians in cuba a couple of times we did an episode on dorothy day's visit to cuba and on cardinal did we talk about him in cuba i don't yeah, can't remember now briefly so know. Yeah, okay. We've talked about Christians in Cuba before, is what I'm saying. But uh, there are some really great kind of more recent um, comments about Cuba. If you thought that all that stuff was in the past or, you know, easy for Dorothy Day to say uh, early on or easy for Ernesto Cardinal to say in the 70s, um, here's some things that uh, a couple of our favorite uh, theology boys, Fry Beto and Leonardo Boff, had to say uh, in the 21st century. Um, so uh, I want to maybe start with this one really neat interview from Fry Beto in 2009. Um, that was the 50th anniversary of the revolution. Uh, so Beto did some stuff to 
praise it. <laughs> um, and in this interview, he has some really, really neat comments, I think. Um, so I want to start with one that will tie back to what you were just saying about Lent. Um, he says this, uh, but why are people leaving Cuba? He asks kind of like a rhetorical question. He says, of course, because to live in socialism, it is like living in a monastery. You have to be altruistic. Think of the community first and not of yourself. And all of us are born capitalists. We're born selfish. Then there are people also in Cuba who want to leave to try to get rich. Many monks also leave the monasteries that do not support the community life of sharing all goods. Um, and I like what Beto says here because it is looking at Cuba and socialism as something like a spiritual discipline or something like that. Like uh, you, you really have to accustom yourself to uh not thinking of your own desires first uh but thinking of the good of your neighbor and um you know your neighborhood and that sort of thing uh and i really appreciate that kind of gloss on it and it's important to note too that again this is in 2009 so you know beto has seen the worst in cuba the um the uh special period after the collapse of the soviet union and everything else and he's still uh willing to say this um and beto's not like a dummy or an ideologue um he's a very smart brazilian theologian who suffered under dictatorship so uh it's just a, a kind of important um perspective to keep in mind i think to see cuba as a kind of spiritual discipline where this sort of suffering makes sense uh yeah so this is an interview that is uh that we're reading through google translate because neither of us are good enough to speak spanish um and I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just Google tra Translate uh, giving us like a very funny line. But uh, I love the phrase uh, that Beto uses here. All of us are born capitalists. <laughs> We're born selfish. <laughs> and it's really funny because like, um, I don't know, man, sometimes ugh, Christian theology is so weird. I don't know. Are we really all born sinners? I don't I don't know. I, <laughs> my my kid, he's great. Um, I don't think so. But uh, is was he born a capitalist? Well, maybe, though. Um, <laughs> maybe he the does want, sin. yeah, he does want all of the Pokemon cards. He wants, you know, everything, uh, to consume it all. So maybe, but anyways, framing it as being born capitalist and then having to sort of change is a really interesting idea. At least one that makes more sense to my, uh, my stupid brain. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, again, it makes more sense in Lent. Uh, Lent is about actually being able to change your life. I'm just gonna keep I'm gonna I'm keeping right I'm riding this Lent train all all the way here um, <laughs> now that you started going to an Episcopal church you're just a liturgy boy all the way I know that's right and you know we went uh this is a side note but my son goes to a Catholic school and uh, we went to the Catholic church for Ash Wednesday and uh so we get we're getting it all all this good high church stuff um, you really are that's we're right over, we're we're soaking in it <laughs> Um, well, let me pull out a little bit more of what Beto says, and we can just stay on the theme for a second. Uh, so, um, responding to another question, Beto goes on to say, uh, you can think of socialism as a system of material abund abundance, um, which they did in Eastern European socialism. Today, that's recognized as a mistake, but we have to think of socialism as a spiritual abundance. That is, even if there are difficulties, people will understand that there are difficulties for everyone, which are produced by the fact of socialism coexisting with a world of competition, selfishness, exploitation, that is, a capitalist world. And from there, you find ways to overcome these ideas until you discover that in socialism, as the word affirms, social rights are above personal rights, but in which personal potentialities can also develop without putting a contradiction between one and another. It is much more humanizing, much more loving, 
especially capable of attending to this fundamental desire of all of us that is to conquer happiness. Um, again, maybe some weird Google Translate in there, but I think the uh, the idea comes through pretty clearly, right? That um, you could think of socialism as material abundance, right? Everybody should have everything, and that's fine. Uh, but Beto says you should actually think of it more as a spiritual abundance, which is to say we kind of have to elevate ourselves to uh, the level of being able to um, go without ourselves because we know that everybody is going without uh, and trying to build a society where there are social rights um, that actually enable you to uh, pursue your own personal potentialities. Um, I think that's like such a neat way of putting what socialism is and also uh, a really challenging way to think about what it means to live in a capitalist society, which doesn't really encourage you to think of your life this way. Yeah, totally. It makes me think of, I mean, this is this is like a really interesting like socialist foil to the... Uh like some of like the the luxury like gay space communism or whatever of mm. uh you know um shoot i can't remember those guys names right now the accelerationist kind of guys though um but yeah it's uh spiritual abundance over physical abundance i think that's an interesting uh i don't know distinction yeah that's right we don't need a fully automated luxury communism we just need um <laughs> nice regular socialism (laughs) (laughs) uh man that's a great bumper sticker though uh gay i mean i don't know don't get me wrong uh luxury gay space communism sounds great but also just like nice nice socialism would be great too (laughs) yeah yeah uh cool well there's another part in the uh interview that uh fry talks a little bit more about cuba and its uh approach to democracy that i think is good i mean it's just riffing off more of these like same kind of points but i think it's worth reading here too So, yeah, on uh, democracy in Cuba, Fray Beto says, In Cuba, it's a participatory democracy. It's a people that not only share their political rights, but also their economic rights. Cuba does not have millionaires, does not have social insecurity, it does not have misery. The people participate highly in the decisions of the government and choose for its socialist system with a single party, but that defends the interests of a majority. That is its sovereign escort. Therefore, Cuba is diabolized, Cuba is diabolized in the international coverages. Shoot. Therefore, Cuba is diabolized in the international averages. Cuba must perfect its political processes, but that depends on the end of its criminal blockade with the United States. So again, you you have this uh, sense of like I don't know community solidarity, like the um, the putting the community before the individual here in Cuba, all the stuff that you'd expect in a communist type of situation, um, <laughs> but reiterated here uh, as a, in terms of democracy. Um, so, you know, not only, um, not only do people like in sort of the recent dialogue um, around Cuba, not only is Fidel Castro an authoritarian in terms of education, but also, you know, it's a one party government, but here even Fred Beto is saying like, yeah, it is, but people are really involved in that one party government. And I can't say I'm an expert on like the political system of Cuba at the moment, but um, you know, whenever you see stuff about the elections uh, going on in Cuba, I mean, there are elections, there are like local elections and national elections, but people are super involved. So um, I don't know, it's not fair just to say it's a one party state that has, you know, no real like, you know, uh, that that doesn't answer to its people because that's just not true. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so this is definitely uh, blocking against even right Bernie Sanders suggestion that Cuba is best understood as an authoritarian uh, government. Um, but I doesn't think that, obviously. Uh, but I think it's also interesting because 
the U.S. Um, presents uh, an illusion of choice, right? So it's not authoritarian because you can't point to one person like Fidel Castro or something and say, well, that's the leader. Uh, but you also can't choose any option that isn't uh, more capitalism one way or another. Uh, that's all you get. And that's not a very participatory democracy either, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the U.S. is riddled with all kinds of voter suppression and redlining and um, gerrymandering, etc. So <laughs> at the end of the day, um, the binary between democracy and authoritarianism falls apart pretty quickly under any kind of scrutiny of, of both societies, right? Like uh, Cuba is different than the U.S. for sure. And maybe there are things you might like or dislike about it, but authoritarian isn't the best way to investigate how the process actually operates on the ground in a country like Cuba. Uh, just like in the U.S., um, it's called a democracy, but if you really spend a lot of time looking at it, um, you'll find all kinds of undemocratic levers that don't enable you to choose so uh i don't know it's just important to kind of keep making those kind of terms complicated and uh use them as excuses to investigate rather than just repeat that kind of stuff to anderson cooper (laughs) that's right i mean it's a bummer because like you know if you if you have a brain and you're a person that possesses that brain you can like think these thoughts and kind of get here pretty quick right like that you can see that authoritarianism is a pretty tricky term when it comes to cuba or you know when it comes to the united states even But, uh, you know, these are things that people can't express on TV or on debate stages or on news clips or, you know, with Anderson Cooper, because like, I don't know, um, because, uh, you know, they don't want you to have these types of conversations, um, and, and stuff, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Just, just think about it. Just don't listen. Don't listen to Anderson Cooper. (laughs) Listen (laughs) to Bernie Sanders. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. And like, to be fair, I mean, Fidel has a very, uh, uh, I don't know how to put it rightly. His personality is very big. Um, I think it might even have been Boff. I don't know if it was in something that we pulled out for this episode or not, but I remember for some reason Boff saying that uh, Fidel, he's bigger than the island of Cuba. Um, mm-hmm. like he, you know, he, he is a presence. That is Boff, yeah. Yeah, okay. And th- there's no doubt about that, right? Like he, uh, I don't know. He's a big deal and he has a big presence. That's true. Um, but again, not necessarily a, a complete conflict with democracy or something you know like george washington had to convince people not not to make him the king of america so i don't know it's just like (laughs) these are complicated things revolutions are very complicated political situations yep they are Um, All right. Uh, One last thing from this interview with Beto, and then we can talk about a few other things uh, as we close out. So uh, there's also a great question that's posed to him in this interview about freedom. So the the interviewer says, what do you say to people who say there's no freedom in Cuba? Beto says, I always say to these people and their employees, what freedom do they have? In Cuba, people have freedom, not in the capitalist sense, with a small minority that has freedom of everything and the majority who do not have the freedom to live in decent conditions or to put their children in school, to have a good treatment of health or moving around the world. In Cuba, there is no individual tourism, but if a cultural group needs to travel, the state itself finances the trip. Everything has to have a social sense. This is correct. In my country, which is Brazil... Only a small minority has the possibility to travel. The majority still cannot move, even inside. Uh, so, again, just uh, Fry Beto here kind of recontextualizing what it means to think about freedom, uh, asking us to ask ourselves, I guess, what seems kind of more or less free, or uh, what are certain trades worth making, or, you know, who suffers so that some other people can enjoy their freedom. Um, yeah, just a important kind of contextualizing piece. 
Yeah, it is an important contextualizing piece because, I mean, in the United States, right, we're so free. We can do whatever we want. We hear, you know, that as at least uh, that's the idea. But, you know, some people can't even walk down the street without being shot by police. And people can, you know, destroy an entire country or, you know, support a a coup in another country and, you know, get off with no problem. So I don't know. (laughs) Freedom's one of those tricky words, huh? (laughs) Indeed, it is. It's a tricky one. Uh, all right, that's uh, back in 2009, um, which feels like a very long time ago now. Um, but uh, <laughs> some more recent stuff. Um, this was uh, an article in the National Catholic uh, Reporter, not the National Catholic Register. Very important. <laughs> the Register is a bad one. The Reporter is a good one. Um, National Catholic Reporter on uh, Boff and Beto supporting Fidel. Um, just kind of a neat little article about their support for Castro. Um and uh, let's get Boff in the mix here. We've been talking a lot about Beto. Um, I think this is a fascinating little gloss that Boff has quoted in this article. He says, his Marxism is more ethical than political. How to do justice to the poor. He has read a mountain of books, all of them with notes. I once told him, if Cardinal Ratzinger understood half of what you understand of the theology of liberation, my personal destiny and the future of this theology would be very different. <laughs> uh, so two good things here. Um, one is, uh, well, I'll work backwards. Of course, the, the pot shot against Cardinal Ratzinger, future Pope Benedict, who did uh, put a uh, silence on Boff, a gag order on Boff. Um, mm-hmm. Extremely tragic and very bad. Uh, anyway nice um pope fidel would have been great uh i love to though the characterization of marxism as more ethical than political just seems kind of right on the money for if you read uh fidel talking in interviews or you see videos of him speaking he does always it seems to me come across a lot more kind of concerned about what's the ethical thing to do rather than what's politically expedient or something yeah yeah that's the feeling i get too um (laughs) this is like uh, barely a point but it's kind of funny um there's a quote from that article too where uh boff uh, this it reads like this boff said in a typically provocative fashion that <laughs> castro got on well with john paul ii in part because they are both authoritarian personalities dictators if you like <laughs> <laughs> i love that <laughs> yeah it's a good play yeah, so I guess uh, the real point that I'm trying to pull out here by bringing boff and beto into the conversation is that um there are good theological reasons for supporting a project like cuba for supporting a person like fidel castro uh beyond even just the early days of the revolution you know in in the 60s for instance it it would have been hard to find a real progressive worth their salt who didn't think what was happening in cuba was exciting uh it was very easy to support cuba at that time if you were you know easy if you were on the left i guess um people wouldn't like bat an eye at that uh, so it's not surprising that Dorothy Day would go to Cuba and she left Fidel Castro and all that kind of thing, whatever. Um, same with Ernesto Cardinal in the seventies. Uh, but you might feel like it gets harder and harder as decades go on and it does get more difficult, uh, for a number of reasons. But the fact that Boff and Beto still in the 21st century, you know, within the last five years are, uh, making comments about, um, how important Cuba is in the world, how important Fidel has been in the world, I think is really significant. And especially as Christians on the left, like people just don't, care about liberation theology anymore and i don't <laughs> understand that uh so i want to maybe close out with just some comments from beto 
who just um, not too long ago said that it's important to keep Castro's ideas alive. Um, this was in 2016, and of course, Fidel Castro uh, passed away. Um, so he's speaking kind of with these, uh, with that in the background. Um, so he goes on to sort of praise Castro and the Cuban Revolution and all that sort of thing. Um, but what I think is really great is uh, he says Cubans must embrace the legacy, Fidel's ideals, to avoid suffering all the scourge of many Latin American countries affected by inequality, injustice, and the abandonment inherent in capitalism. Um, and, you know, he's speaking from the context of watching all of the continent of Latin America sort of swing back and forth between these kind of uh, new horizons of leftist energy that then get trounced for one reason or another. Uh, and Cuba is the one country that really remained steadfast or was able to sort of survive uh, despite the whole world kind of having to bend to the will of the U S which is not in favor of it existing at all. Um, so anyway, I, I think I just want to like, if I could say anything about Fidel Castro, it would be that, uh, if he's good enough for Fry Beto, then he's good enough for me. <laughs> That's sort of how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Um, yeah, well, I don't know It all just, uh, well, I mean, first of all, yeah, Fry Beto has like a certain type of moral character that, um, that does make you feel like, well, if he's good enough for Fry, it's good for the rest of us. But, um, I mean, just kind of getting into some of this, though, does reveal sort of how completely vapid and stupid the political discourse is around socialism, especially Cuba, uh, even in 2020, long after anyone cares about communism, really. Um, it's just like all so completely shallow and unthoughtful mm-hmm. and uncritical. So, like, I don't know. It It's worth kind of getting back into whenever Bernie Sanders or whoever brings it back up, because uh, I, I, I don't know, like the the thing that i guess that sticks with me through all this it's like dumb dumb stuff is uh is pete Buttigieg at the at the stupid debate saying that nobody cares about the politics of the the 1960s anymore and like (laughs) shut up (laughs) actually it's like super important Mm -hmm. it's super important if we uh if if we're gonna be people who are you know either uh progressives or anarchists or marxists to think really hard about what building a moral society actually looks like. And Fidel Castro thought a lot about it. So let's at least like engage critically with that. Yeah, that's good. Um, and don't let Anderson Cooper bait you into saying Fidel's an authoritarian unless you've done your homework. Oh my God. I mean, if you do your homework, you won't say that. So I guess that's what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. We also got some stickers and some more stickers and a t-shirt or two and uh, maybe like a throw pillow. I don't know. On our Redbubble store, uh, redbubble.com, uh, and then just type in the Magnificast and you'll find us there. Uh, yeah, follow us on Twitter, uh, join our Facebook page, uh, etc. I don't know all those things. Just get in, get involved with us. Let us let us create content for you. Just come <laughs> on. Um, in this Lenten season, it could be it could be what you don't give up for Lent. I don't know. It could be what you um, do extra. Cool. Your holy work. 
this is the holy work that you're doing. That's right. Um, listening to this podcast, giving us the listens is, is the holy work. Um, <laughs> all right, cool. Um, the intro music is by Amari Armstrong, and the outro music is, as always, by The Illogical Spoon. So take it away, The Illogical Spoon. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.